The following contains plot spoilers, and the comments and opinions expressed herein are for entertainment and commentary purposes only and may not reflect the actual opinions of Geeks Radio or the individual hosts. So don't get mad, it's just a show. It was a world of mutants. It was a world of podcasts. It was a world where the technology of 1960 somehow looked better developed and with a bigger budget than the technology of the early 2000s. And today, we'll be discussing it on Totally Super. <laughs> Welcome to Totally Super, where we review every superhero movie ever made. My name is Justin. And my name is Arthur. Arthur, may I say to you, that is one of my favorite inner worlds that you have ever done. Really? It was really kind of kind of wonderful. Yeah, I liked it. It was it oh. was well it was well put and I think that that's that's worth mentioning about this film. This is uh first of all, uh, I want to say thank you to everyone who's been patient uh with us going 20 days in between and changing movies halfway through. Uh I think it's safe to say that we are on to the next season of Totally yes. Super where we get to come back at you in a more regular basis because let's face it, I got kids in school. Ladies and gentlemen, and that means that finding time to record can be a little bit difficult. Uh, but they are back, which gave me the opportunity to sit down with one of my favorite superhero movies. And dare I say, a question we will ask at the end, the best X-Men movie, maybe? Um, X-Men First Class, which I am just thrilled thrilled to talk about uh this movie was directed by matthew vaughn uh who we've spoken about before uh this is one of the first times we've referred like outside of sequels that we've returned to filmmakers that we've talked about before um and there certainly is a a, a, a there's a certain amount of nepotism within the superhero genre where you say that there's a certain class <laughs> of directors who are directing things it's why you're seeing james gunn jump off of Guardians of the Galaxy to do the new Suicide Squad movie before he jumps back into Guardians of the Galaxy. And Matthew Vaughn has directed, listen to this, as a series of films. Now, Kick-Ass, you said you enjoyed as a film, but not as, you didn't like the messages it gave, but as a film, you enjoyed it, correct? Uh, yes, I would go along with that. All right. X-Men First Class, Kingsman and Kingsman 2, both of which I really enjoy. They're very rock and roll. And then Stardust, which I have never seen. Oh, but Stardust I almost is wonderful. Feel like, I was going to say, I, it almost seems like the kind of movie that you would really like. Yeah, that was, uh, Stardust was, it was originally a novel by Neil Gaiman and uh, was then turned into a movie, which I thought was actually a very good adaptation. It does not stay super faithful to the book. Uh, but in many ways, I've actually felt kind of improved on the source material, which is uh, which is a pretty difficult thing to do when your source material is Neil Gaiman. Uh, but that's interesting. I didn't know that Vaughn directed Stardust. Um, he has he has a pretty wide range in his directing style. Like Tarantino, if Tarantino directs a film, you know that it's a Quentin Tarantino film. Um, I would not have in any way, based on those two films thought that the director of Kick-Ass was the same as the director of Stardust. They've just got two, besides the story content, they just have two very different styles in terms of acting, uh, the, the scenes, the, the cinematography. Um, and for that matter, even X-Men First Class, I would not have necessarily pegged as being the same person who directed Kick-Ass. 
I feel like when you get to Kingsman, which we're going to have to cover because it is a it's a comic book movie. Uh, when you get to Kingsman, you see the conglomeration of Kick-Ass and X-Men First Class because Kick-Ass had sort of the the hyper violence, the, the, the violence is, that is so violent that it's over the top and funny in it and, and you're, you're enjoying just the craziness of it. And then X-Men First Class certainly has a swagger to it that I think that combine into Kingsman, which I think is is an astounding film. Mm-hmm. Um but but X Men First Class is coming on the heels of you know I, I love that we're starting the new season of Totally Super as a follow up to a season that we've already done in that we have done the first three X Men movies and if you haven't listened to those reviews we said that X Men uh, that the first X Men was groundbreaking and what it did the second X Men movie X Two X Men United was a what was a rock solid just really really good superhero movie um, and that that. X3 is frankly was a step down in in major major ways. This is seen as somewhat of a course correction. Uh, first of all, Brian Singer is not in is not involved in this film. He wrote the story, but he's not directing this film. Having uh, jumped over to do Superman Returns instead of or he had jumped over to Superman Returns instead of the third X-Men movie and then they brought Matthew Vaughn in to sort of course correct and Matthew Vaughn was supposed to continue in the doing the entire trilogy for this but then Again, the studio got involved and he was off and Singer was back and we know how that ended up going for the X-Men films. And we'll talk mm-hmm. about that over the course of the next few weeks. <coughs> um, but uh, X-Men First Class opened uh, on, do-do-do-do, trying to pull it out. Uh, it came out in 2011, opening on May 25th, 2011 uh, in the United States. Uh, or June 3rd in 2011, the United States was wide release, runs 132 million with a budget of 140 to 160 million dollars with a total worldwide box office of 353.6 million. That's really not in the upper echelon of the X-Men films. This is one of the lower grossing X-Men films and the budget of now, 140 was that 350, to 160 was that million. Was that 350 million uh, total or just the first weekend? No, that's three hundred and fifty three point six million total worldwide. Oh wow! So they kind of just broke even. Yeah, they kind of they maybe didn't all the way break even on the film because you have to keep in mind that that they generally say that you need to do double just to break even, but then you have things like like advertising. You have the when a lot of it is from the worldwide gross, you're making less. Blah blah blah. It's it very complicated, but it was not by any means a giant hit. It has established sort of a cult status as time's gone. A lot of people come back to this film as being just one of the most solid that was done. It's the, it is by far the least silly of any of the X-Men movies. Mm-hmm. Um, Days of Future Past, I think also you could say is less silly, although it's more fan, or it's more fantastical. This is yeah. the, I, I and we'll, we'll talk about it, but I think this is the ultimate expression of what Brian Singer was going for. Um, we talked in the first one about how Brian Singer was 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 focused very very much on the realism, putting it in the real world and the allegory for what it was. But we, in our prior reviews, we talked about how the action never quite held up. And then the third one had good action, but the story was terrible. So you finally, I think, this is going to get there. We're going to talk all about it real quick. Um, we've talked about uh, the 
sorry about the box office. Um, reception was good. Um, it's got super high ratings, super high reviews on uh, on Rotten Tomatoes. It was uh, it was not a sure thing after the third film, and a follow up to this was also not going to be a sure thing. But I think the quality won out, and I think that it had such a life on home video that it was able to move forward and have, uh, and have further sequels. And with that, uh, if you, sir, wouldn't mind, I would like to know what is the plot? Dear God, sir, I do not envy you. Yeah. The plot plot is a lot. This is, uh, this is, (laughs) um, I'm, I'm sure glad you liked my inner world because this plot is a, just a, cut and paste I mean, seriously, yeah, here let, let me let me summarize your plot we start in the holocaust with a child we end in the late 60s with a superhero team yeah what and it's uh um, well i mean it's, and, and of course it's convoluted because this is at heart in, in many ways it's a cold war film and Anytime you're dealing with Cold War espionage, of course, there's going to be layers upon layers upon layers and double backs and backstabs and all sorts of stuff like that. So uh, that being said, uh, sort of a prologue at a German concentration camp in occupied Poland during 1944, young Eric Lenscher is separated from his parents by Nazi guards and somehow magnetically bends a metal gate until he is knocked unconscious. The scientist, Sebastian Shaw, going by a German pseudonym, who has observed this incident through a window, calls Lencher up to see him. He learns, that anger activate, he learns that anger activates the boy's power by shooting his mother in front of him uh, in his rage and demonstrating categorically what the Darth Vader scene should have been in I Revenge of the Sith. Too. It was... Yeah, okay, now I'm going to stop the plot right now. Mr. Lucas... Watch this scene. <laughs> That's what we should have been seeing when Vader learned that Padme was dead. Okay. Anyway. It's worth noting that this came out after that. Doesn't so matter. Still not forgiven. Is, yeah. Uh, in his rage. <laughs> Lencher's no! out of con- No. <laughs> in his rage, Lencher's out of control magnetic power kills the two guards and destroys two rooms to Shaw's delight. Shaw tells Lencher that they will have fun developing the boy's power. Around this same time, in Westchester County, New York, a place that is about as diametrically opposed to concentration camp Poland as you can achieve, uh, in a New York mansion, young Charles Xavier encounters a young shape-shifting girl named Raven who has snuck into his kitchen to steal some food. He speaks to her telepathically and overjoyed to meet someone else who is different like him, Xavier invites her in and somehow adopts her as his sister. Jump ahead to 1962. Lencher, now grown, is on a blood hunt for Shaw and leaving an impressive trail of bodies in his wake. Meanwhile, over in England, Xavier has graduated from Oxford and is publishing his thesis on mutation. Raven, now his foster sister, works as a waitress. Simultaneously, in Las Vegas, Nevada, the CIA agent Moira McTaggart follows U.S. Army Colonel Henry into the Hellfire Club, where she sees Shaw, same guy, and his host of designated mutant henchmen for the film. Shaw threatens the colonel into putting missiles into Turkey, and the plot thickens. Later, when Henry uh, tries to destroy Shaw with a grenade, we learn that Shaw's evil mutant power is absorbing and then violently redistributing kinetic energy. McTaggart enlists the help of mutation expert Xavier and Raven, and they track Shaw to his yacht, at the same time that Lencher catches up with him. 
Lencher's assassination attempt fails when Shaw and his cronies escape via super spy submarine. But in the process, he and Xavier meet, and the rivalry slash bromance begins. The two decide to seek out other mutants, and using a machine called Cerebro developed by CIA scientist Hank McCoy, also a mutant, they have a team-building montage, which includes possibly the greatest cameo and use of the singular PG-13 F-bomb rule in history when they fail to recruit a mutant named Logan. We'll discuss that later. Uh, let's see. A lot of Cold War stuff happens, but basically Sean and his gang are trying to engineer the Cuban Missile Crisis with the idea that a world engulfed in a radioactive nuclear holocaust will be a world with encouraged mutation. Shaw pays a visit to Xavier's CIA facility and kills most of the agents and at least one mutant recruit. Xavier realizes that if the mutants are going to really play in the big leagues, they need to train, and so we begin another epic training montage. The final showdown takes place just off the coast of Cuba. As the American and Russian fleet face off against each other, Shaw appears in his super spy submarine, ready to force a violent reaction from both nations. But the X-Men arrive just in time, thanks to their speedy and spiffy SR-71 Blackbird, which, uh, sorry, SR-71 Blackbird, which is, incidentally, empirically proven to be the coolest plane that has ever been designed. A big battle ensues, during which Eric, despite Xavier's pleas, successfully murderizes Shaw using a very, very ironic coin trick. Just when it seems like the crisis is averted, the American fleet receives orders to kill all of the mutants, since they are just too powerful to be trusted. They launch a missile strike. Eric magnetically grabs the missiles and moves to send them back to the fleet. Xavier desperately tries to stop him, as does McTaggart, but when she fires a gun at him, Eric deflects the bullet accidentally into Xavier's spine. Seeing his friend wounded, Eric drops the missiles into the sea. Uh, in the aftermath, the mutant team reaches a parting of the waves. Uh, parting of the ways. Those mutants who are convinced that the only way to survive is to go to war with the humans, incidentally including Xavier's adopted sister Raven, join with Eric. Those who choose a peaceful coexistence choose Xavier. The final shot of the film is of Eric busting the diamond telepath Emma Frost out of a CIA prison. He tells her not to call him Eric anymore, but by his mutant name, his true name, Magneto. And thus, the dance that will take decades to reach its conclusion atop the Statue of Liberty in the early 2000s is begun. Fiend. Well, you know, it's... First of all, I think it's great that he busts uh, Emma Frost out. We're certain to see her again. Yeah, right. Um... Right. Uh, there's there's a lot. So I think the first thing to unpack is, uh, did you see this in the theater? No. Were you even an X-Men fan by this point, by 2011? We were already friends. And and I know that you had your own. Dude, I was an uh, X-Men fan. Right I, around, we, we've gone over this. I was an X-Men fan, X-Men fan when I saw the first film 10 years earlier. All right. So so I can't remember everything. I drink a lot. Um, Xavier, I, you know, some people have Xavier wiping their mind. I have Jack, Jack Daniels. Um, the the reason I ask is that is that there was I don't remember there being a strong push to go see this the way that people had for the first two X movies. Not I remotely. There, there was more sort of. a Oh, there. I mean, this film even years later, even though it came out years after X3, was still reeling from the bad taste that X3 left in everybody's mouth. Um, so well, it was sort of like a, so oh, it, it was kind of like a, oh, they're making a new X-Men film. Oh, they're doing a prequel. That's, 
Hey, that's kind of nifty, I guess. I'll, I'll get around to seeing that. Well, let's let's keep this in mind. Uh, we are not only dealing with uh, we're not only dealing with the reeling after X three, but this is also post X Men Origins Wolverine. Which oh, we will get to when we yeah. get to season three of the X Men, which is going to be the Wolverine trilogy. Um, this is, uh, yeah, this is not. Um, it had been a while since X Men films had been good. Yeah, and I think that there's something there's something that I I called the Ace Ventura effect, which is well, there are two things I call the Ace Ventura effect, but this is one of them. The idea that a second movie does really, really well or really, really poorly based on the expectations of the first movie. And people apply judgment to the second movie based on its success when really its success or failure is based more on people's feelings about the 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 preceding film. So for instance, Ace Ventura 2 had twice the did twice as well as the first Ace Ventura, despite the fact not being as good. Same thing as Austin Powers. The second Austin Powers nowhere near as good as the first, but did way more box office because people loved the first. That can work in, in like in the reverse as well. You can have a really good film that nobody goes to see because they felt burned by the first one. Uh, mm-hmm. Certainly the se- second ghostwriter is better than the first Ghost Rider, or at least it's crazier. Um, and there are other films, you know, down the pike there was, that we go. There was a second that, that Ghost Rider. Yes, there was a second Ghost Rider. Oh, we're gonna have to get there. I guess so. Yeah. <laughs> um, have we we better stop doing these first tier films because we're gonna have to, eventually we're gonna be watching that Dolph Lundgren Punisher we've talked about so much. <laughs> um, so so coming into this, there was like not a ton of expectation. I think that the films like this. Um, have the advantage of being an under, underdog. If you mm-hmm. don't expect anything from the film and then it really impresses you, I think that that can solidify it. And I wondered going in, is that why I liked it so much that it was well, just better? Certainly than those are films. some of our, frequently those are our best uh, theatrical film experiences when it's, I can, I mean, Italian job certainly had this effect. Uh, the Emperor's New Groove uh, had this effect it was the it, it, it's the sense when you're watching it and you're saying this movie had I walked I sat down for this film not expecting a ton this movie has no business being half as good as it is based on every reasonable expectation of this film um, uh, those it, are, Enter the Spider-Verse the, yeah, the, into the animated spi- yeah. Spider-Man movie mm-hmm. and those are those um, frequently beca- and, but I think you're right there even um I mean, don't get me wrong, the movies where we have high expectations that then pay off those expectations, like Avengers Endgame, those are amazing, and those are extremely difficult to pull off. But to a certain degree, the real gems in our hearts are the ones where we didn't know what to expect, and suddenly we got a really pleasant experience when we weren't expecting one. Like, Avengers Endgame, we were expecting awesome, and if we didn't get it, we were going to be pissed. This was a film yeah. where I was where I was just like I don't know what this is going to be and then I got awesome and I loved it. Yeah, I think that um most recently uh in terms of of expectations being tempered is going to be a movie we get to when we get to X-Men Dark Phoenix in a few weeks because I knew going in that that was a big flaming pile of crap. So I, you know, small spoiler alert, I didn't find it to be a big flaming pile of crap. I won't say whether or not I thought it was good, but I will say going into it, knowing that everybody hated it, 
made me a lot less bothered by its flaws to the it point is. where I could walk out and go, you know, it yeah. wasn't. It's, wasn't it's that, for the same reason. Both Batman versus Superman and Justice League I have watched on HBO at home after hearing, you know, it getting panned by critics and fans. Um, and for both films, Justice League especially, I was like, ah, oh, I quite enjoyed that. And there were some cool moments in it. I'm glad to have seen yeah, those films. Think, yeah, but I think my enjoyment of it was helped by a tempering of my expectations. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I think that in in all the cases that we've just mentioned, if we went in expecting a great film and then got what we got, we might have been less happy. Well, and but what if we, you're, you know, what you're hitting on there, because we've discussed this a lot, like, you know, when a when a film is, we have very different approaches to the pre gaming for a film. Uh, when a big film is coming out, uh, we've talked about this. You love going on and like learning all the stuff ahead of time, and you know, and you know, and following it. It's it, it's like. Uh, it's like the people who follow all the preseason for their favorite football team. Uh, for me, I don't want to hear anything. I just want to show up. And I think part of the reason for that is, yes, spoilers has something to do with it, but I think the more, my feeling is, the more time that I invest into learning about a film before it comes out, it cannot help but the higher my expectations then become. And since we've discovered this formula of if you don't have high expectations, you are not guaranteed, but more likely to enjoy the film. Yeah, I think there's, I think there is truth to that. Um, I think there, again, the exceptions are the ones that I've, that I've mentioned. I, I enjoy part of what I enjoy about film and, and I want to be clear to anyone who's going, Oh, he likes to know things beforehand. I avoid spoilers like the plague. I really, really, really try to avoid spoilers. And it's a tough thing to do because I do want to know all the minutiae about the production mm-hmm. and and how it's doing and stuff while also avoiding spoilers. And yeah. sometimes those two things are incon- incongruous with one another. And it's um, worth noting so that you actually take a... You please take don't a great send deal me spoilers, en- ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and it's worth noting you take a great deal of enjoyment and joy out of learning the minutiae of the production. So it's not like... So even if it were to somehow minimally impact your enjoyment of the film when you saw it, you still got all of that enjoyment out of the pregame. Yeah, I would say that I would say that when I love when I say I love movies, you know, I like making them. I like dissecting them. You know, I like looking at the past. I listen to movie podcasts. I create movie podcasts. Um, I, I would say that the the ancillary stuff around movies is kind of my hobby. Yeah. Like knowing knowing how a movie is done that's it's sort of fun for me to follow i guess the way that people follow sports scores and stuff um uh, there's a point where i heard about a website that where you could do like fantasy football but you did it with like movies and how well they did and you almost did movies like the stock market mm-hmm. like you would guess how a movie did and you could guess how you felt the next open the next weekend of the box office is going to do and based on how you did you got certain points and stuff and it sounded really fun i never i never have time to get into stuff like that but i always thought about doing it because it sounds mm-hmm. like fun so yes i do enjoy the minutia that surrounds a film um i think that uh all of that being said to get to the film uh itself um, I it's worth pointing a couple of things out. One, coming on the heels of uh, of X Men Origins Wolverine, uh, you had the idea that they were going to do a series of Origins films, and the next planned film was going to be X Men Origins Magneto. That was the next planned film. Now, the official story is that this film is not based on that story. 
that 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 this is a separate thing than that story. That being said, the screenwriter of that story um, is actually uh, is actually credited on this film um, as being a screenwriter of this film. Mm-hmm. Uh, also, Brian Singer credited to being a screenwriter in this film. I don't know how much he actually had um, involvement in in this. Uh, there's an X Men First Class comic on which the idea from for this film came from that, but the story does not follow that comic. This is sort of its own thing, a building uh, a, a building of its own creation. Um, so that being said, uh, what are your thoughts about? The comic version of the Hellfire Club. How much do you know about them? Because I know quite a bit. I want to see what your what your thoughts are and your opinions are of the Hellfire Most of what Club I know about the Hellfire Club is based uh, off the Claremont era. Um, you know, when Emma Frost was sort of its front runner uh, in you know her run-ins with uh, with both when she kidnapped Kitty Pride, when Jean Grey was uh, uh, I believe it was brainwashed into the Hellfire Club for a while. Um, it was they never they never struck me as being the kind of a list villain group that could actually threaten you know that could actually create a global threat now the more i learn about them the more i'm realizing that's actually not the case that actually some of the uh um was xavier's uh sister uh part of the hellflyer club cuz i remember she was oh a, my goodness this is. I didn't even realize he had a sister. I know that he has a he, he has a a half brother, is the juggernaut. But I did not understand that he had a sister. That's how out of touch I am. Yeah, that's a, uh, Cassandra. Uh, Cassandra something, right? Like the so. I, yeah, yes, there's so many. Yes, 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 yes. yes, yes. I don't um, remember if she was part of the Hellfire Club. Yeah. So the Hellfire uh, Club, to my I, understanding, with the comics, has sort of gone back and forth between between sort of being an almost comic Victorian gentleman's club of villainy. To being an honest to God serious threat, um, and uh, Sebastian Shaw certainly. When I first saw Sebastian Shaw um, in the comics, I didn't take him too seriously, but that was mostly because of the mutton chops. Um, yes, which I am kind, which I am glad that they kept to a certain degree. Uh, but they, uh, but you know, when you really dig into it, they actually there's some real insidious stuff going on there, um, and I. I very, very much liked what they did with uh, the film adaptation of Shaw. Um, not quite so much with uh, with Emma Frost that we can get into later, but that's what I know about the Hellfire yeah. Club anyway. Yeah, Hellfire Club was was key in uh, the Dark Phoenix saga, and that it was the manipulation of of Jean Grey by the Hellfire Club that eventually turns her in, like into the darkest of Dark Phoenixes. Um, it's also worth noting that they had a great run in the eighties uh, with a char- character named Celine and Rachel Summers. Um, and there's a there's a couple of issues there that I really love, but my the my favorite iteration of the hellfire club is a group called the hellions and it's really interesting if you read the new mutants run that the hellions basically the hellfire club is set up in the new mutants comics as being sort of the anti-xaviers where they are not only a group of of victorian you know women in their underwear and shirtless men with ponytails trying to control the world beneath the surface but they are also a school for young mutants and the hellions are sort of the new mutants versions of the hellfire clubs and they are enemies 
of the new mutants, but they find themselves working together a lot. Like the way He-Man and Skeletor sometimes have to work together. Like it's that sort of, sort of <laughs> like the, uh, there's a rivalry. Like they're just like a rival school. And the Hellions eventually in the pages of the X-Men get completely wiped out. Like they all die. Um, and it is that destruction of the school that sort of drives Emma Frost to become a member of the X-Men, which if, if not to this day, very recently, she was an, a member of the X-Men for over a decade. Yeah. That she was a, a main member of the X-Men. I never bought it and I never liked her as a member of the X-Men because she's always Emma Frost from the Hellfire Club. But I mean, if you're there for a decade, I guess you got to accept it. Um, and we will talk about her in this film, but it's, they, they were, if you don't, I, I say this again to anyone and I'll say this every time we do an X-Men film. If you get a chance to read the new mutants issue one to issue 100, it is such an amazing run and an amazing portrait of, of what it's like to be an angsty teenager. Um, it really spoke to me at the time, still speaks to me if I reread it. So if you have the, the Marvel app or anything, go ahead and check out new mutants. All that being said, let's talk about the film that uh, that we have here. Um, I think that <sighs> I don't even know where to start, sir. Uh, let's let's I guess talk about some can... of the uh, some of the iconic characters that were. Uh, we can sure. start with some of the heroes and then move over to the villains. Um, All right. Um, yeah, you go first. I always go first. You 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 start yeah. me off. Well, let's start with the. Uh, um, you know, let's start with the big two, because uh, essentially part of the excitement of this film was seeing a young Xavier uh, and a young uh, Magneto. Um, at the time, correct me if I'm wrong, I mean, James McAvoy had done uh, Wanted, but yeah, wanted. Both, both him and Fassbender were relatively, they were not known names at this point. He did Nomeo and Juliet. Oh, well, that changes everything. Um, uh, he did it, Nomeo and Juliet, and in a scene, he finds himself in a park on a statue of William Shakespeare, voiced by Patrick Stewart. Ooh, so there's Inception. a moment in Nomeo and Juliet where the Xaviers speak together. That's kind of awesome. Uh, yes, anyway, go on. Yeah, by and large, the uh, and McAvoy was an interesting choice, because I, I look at McAvoy and I don't think, oh, that's a young Patrick Stewart. Um, on the other hand, let's be honest, Patrick Stewart at the age of 25 probably still exuded all of the gravitas of 60-year-old uh, Patrick Stewart. Um, sure. So, and for that record, Fassbender didn't strike me as a young Ian McKellen. Uh, that being said, I thought they did, uh, I particularly liked Fassbender's uh, capturing of Magneto. Um, this film did a very good job of showing... Both for both of the characters, when we meet them in the original X-Men film, they are set in their worldviews completely. Uh, what we got to watch in this film was watching them develop their worldview, uh, particularly uh, watching Eric develop his worldview. Like you got this sense that halfway through the film, like, oh, maybe Eric was trying to do things the quote unquote right way. Um but then just got essentially pushed over the edge. Uh, to me, one of the things I enjoyed the most about this film, which is one of the things I enjoyed the most about the X-Men, is how well they did delving into that concept of how is the best way to respond to a world in which many of the people would rather you did not exist. 
Yeah, I think that I think it would have been a mistake for either one of them to try and do what the actors before them did. Very true. Um, and I think I think that, you know, I think we have to talk about them together um because there's enough to say about them separately it would be interesting, but I think that and I wonder I don't know if they planned this together as actors. I don't know how they worked, you know, to prepare as a as a duo, but I think it's really interesting. They had two different ways of dealing with the characters, and those two different ways were also, again, driven somewhat by the script. In that with Magneto, you see the seeds of what will become uh of what will become Ian McKellen's Magneto mm-hmm. uh with with Michael Fassbender, where with McAvoy, the Xavier that you meet is the polar opposite of the Xavier that you know. And and it's like you're watching McAvoy as a or you're watching Fassbender as Clay becoming slowly the Magneto that you know, where when you're watching McAvoy, you're watching pieces of him. He's more like watching a rock get chiseled away where the pieces of him that he starts with are being removed piece by piece by piece by piece. So, so the guy who walks with long hair, with all the swagger, who's interested in sex that you meet at the beginning becomes as, as McAvoy described him, uh, Xavier, a monk, a selfless, egoless, almost sexless force for the betterment of humanity and mortality. Mm, like that's nice. Like like he is the he is the polar opposite of the of the Xavier that you know. Yeah, the Xavier the in this film I is see, kind of a jerk in so many ways. Oh, totally. And I think one of the things that causes this to be the case is that, and this is where we get into problems, is is asking the question if this even belongs in continuity with the original X-Men, because that's something we're going to have to talk about. But Fassbender is necessarily linked to Ian McKellen's Magneto in that the film starts with the same scene mm-hmm. as the original X-Men. And we have to see that little boy become Michael Fassbender. And at the same, but McAvoy, we don't see anyone become Xavier except him and I think that his job will be over the course of the films to become the Xavier that you know and I will say that ultimately the films fail in doing that I think that they if that's what this film is is hoping will happen one day it never happens mm-hmm. but I think the two of them it's it's worth noting what they have here that is so key um, and damn it before split I would have said that McAvoy was a, a a weaker actor and maybe he is a weaker actor in this film. Maybe he's not given as much to do. Maybe I'm just sick of him putting his fingers on his temple. Um, but uh, watching this film, I walked away going fast. Bender is an amazing genius who is going to go so far. And McAvoy, he's pretty good compared to you know, I have our a theory two, for our original ones that we got. Uh, I'm sorry. I have a theory for, for one of the reasons why you might've felt that. And I think it also, well, let- go ahead. Yeah, give me your theory, and then I I I do want to complete my thought because I feel like I've just I've just took a big dump on top of McAvoy that I don't intend to because the second part of my thought is how that's changed. But uh, what's your what what is your theory, sir? Uh, my my theory for why you didn't see as much out of McAvoy was because uh, part of that is the is the character, uh, and I feel that actually is in many ways Eric is a much more sort of likable character, um, certainly. To the degree that frequently Batman is more interesting than Superman. Um, Certainly. Eric came from 
torment. Everything about him is about him being driven by his rage. Part of his battle sometimes is how to ma- is how to find peace in the middle of that rage, which is always a fascinating thing, both as an actor to play and as an audience member to watch. Um, whereas McAvoy is given a character who essentially comes from a life of extreme privilege. Um, yes, he has very highfalutin, very noble ideas about you know the betterment of humankind. And, and we see in Patrick Stewart, uh, or, you know, it's certainly in older Professor Xavier, once those ideas have matured and become melded with a life experience that by its own nature carried a lot of suffering and hard lessons along the way, that's when we get a really interesting character. But right now, what we've got is essentially what we have in... Professor Xavier, uh, which by its very nature makes him a less interesting character for the actor to play, is a trust fund kid who's got these ideas for how to change the world, but has never had to work a day in his life. And if you're talking yeah, about, I think that- yeah, if you're talking about, like, if if somebody came to you and said, "Okay, Justin, I'm going to give you two choice of roles to play. Either this character who had his mother murdered in front of him as a young boy and has been you know, wrestling with that for his entire life or this guy who grew up super rich and has these interesting theories, which character would you prefer to play? Yeah. Oh, of course. Yeah. It would be so much fun to play Magneto, but I don't know if I have the chops. I mean, I do want to say that it's, um, I feel like Michael Fassbender is just for whatever reason has just not happened. Um, the way, that I really thought he would. I thought that this guy was going to be the next thing. And for a while he was, he was showing up in some glorious bastards. Um, but then he w- kept making decisions that were, you know, of the films we saw, like Prometheus wasn't awesome. And, and alien, you know, alien, uh, the alien, other alien covenant wasn't awesome. He's really good in 12 years a slave. He has a really interesting movie named called Frank, where he's in a, in a mask the whole time. Um, but, and he's amazing as Steve Jobs, but that movie didn't really hit. There's a bunch of movies that just like kind of didn't hit. He tried to make it with Assassin's Creed, but he doesn't have like the hits that come out that you, I really expected this guy to, to be, you know, Leonardo DiCaprio next, next level of star where mm-hmm. I didn't expect it from, from James McAvoy. You know, when I, I've had this conversation with Alexi, when I try and slam, not slam, but like criticize an actor's early work, it is worth noting that perhaps James McAvoy was not as good an actor eight years ago that, than he is now. It is worth noting that in the eight years between his experience and or con- continued training has made him a better actor than he was to start with. And whenever I try and jump th- jump in, um, you know, there are people, uh, Alexi included, who don't like any criticism lobbied at actors that they now think are great. Mm. And I think it's worth noting that that he's pretty good in this movie. But by the time he's doing Split and Glass, I think that maybe he's got some new chops. I think that he is he's worked that muscle. He's trained it. He's a better you 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 should be. Should you not be a better actor? Eight years yeah, I was down going to say coming at it from a prior? different coming at it from a different perspective. Like I was a professional actor even eight years ago. I was a professional actor with a 
pretty good degree of success even eight years ago. The thought that I would not be better eight years later, like if somebody said, oh, no, you were you were great eight years ago, but you really haven't improved in the past eight years. That would depress the ever living hell out of me. Um, I would much rather be in a place where um, I would imagine every actor would want to be in a place where, you know, they look back at work they did 10 years ago and not necessarily hating it, but at the same time saying, oh, I see there were mistakes I was making then that I don't anymore. Yeah. Um, and, and I think that's what's happening here. Honestly, I think Michael Fassbender is is such a find. The scene where he the scene like it and it's never as good as this again in, in later films. He does have a, a really interesting scene actually in Apocalypse, which is not a very good film. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he has an interesting scene in Apocalypse where he is really good in it. Um but the scene where he moves the the um the radio tower with his hand and just the, the pain and delight and fear and mm-hmm. everything on his face. That moment, I am close to tears watching a man sticking his hand out. Yeah. And later on, by the time we get to the end of apocalypse where he spends all of his times with his hands out, clearly he's not doing that anymore. Mm-hmm. But in this moment, it is, it is, he's just a, a, a such a find. So yeah. the one thing they do nail, um, is the chemistry between these two people. Yes. Uh, there is electricity between these two guys, which, you know, having lightning strike twice in that kind of way is is wonderful. They are perfectly paired. Would you agree with me there? Uh, I would agree with that, yeah. Um, Let's ju- jump down to next. I want to get your thoughts uh, before we jump into the other big one here. Uh, Rose Byrne as Moira McTaggart. Uh, what are your thoughts about her here? Because I think that she is, you know, is she the unsung co-star of this film? Um, I mean, she's a co-star in terms of, like, her character is a co-star in terms of plot, what she does. She is certainly, you know, McTaggart is a character with agency all her own. Um, in terms of, as a character herself, like, in terms of somebody I'm actually interested in, I found her relatively forgettable. Um, no fault of the actress, I just didn't quite nothing about McTaggart really grabbed me as a, Ooh, that's an interesting character. Um, I, I kind of dug her in the film and no, it's not just because she's, you know, she, she's in her underwear walking around. Um, it would be very easy for that scene to come off as much more exploitative as it does, than it does. And oh, I'd I forgotten that. that. What, she, what scene was that? I'd even forgotten about that one. The, the movie starts with her, basically stripping down to her underwear and walking around like she's supposed to be one oh, of the yeah, girls right, from the right, that. Mm-hmm. Um, it would be very easy for that scene to not play as well as it did. Um, mm-hmm. But it really plays well without her without her seeming exploited by the scene. I think that was it was interesting to note uh, how well that worked uh, for me. Um, I find her charming and I find her to be a a, a wonderful sort of uh, avatar for us, the audience, going through it. Um, I find her, you know, I wouldn't say that she has multiple layers to play because she is, I think, capital G good. You know, I think there's, you, you never wonder if she's good or bad. She's mm-hmm. just good and you know it. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, of course, we all know her. Uh, geeks like us know her from Star Wars Episode Two as Dorme, the, uh, the, um, the handmaiden to Amidala. Uh, who's so worried that she's going to be running off with with uh, 
with Anakin. That's just how I know her. Um, I think that she's great. And I think that when I say unsung, I think that no one thinks about her in this film. Mm-hmm. And I think that she is, uh, she absolutely works as an avatar for the audience. And I think, I, I think her, she's, she is both, part of the, she is part of the glue that holds some of the, uh, the bigger set pieces together. Um, yeah. And I think that, and I think that she, I think without her and without the grounded performance that she's giving, I think the film doesn't work as well. So uh, Mm. kudos to her. Okay. Let's talk about the other big get, not a huge get at the time, right? Because she had done winter's bone. We're talking about Jennifer Lawrence as mystique. Mm -hmm. She'd done winter's bone and she had gotten, you know, Academy award, I think either, either the award or the nomination for it, but she like, she was a post hunger games. This is pre hunger games. Okay. This is before she becomes Jennifer Lawrence, but I don't know if she had gotten, um, I don't know if she got the Oscar for that. She got Best Actress the year before. So so on Winter's Bone, which is a great film, by the way, if you've never seen it, uh, she had gotten the, the Oscar. This was her next thing after the Oscar. Um, you know, it's interesting. I've talked to you offline about how much I disliked her performance in the last two X-Men films. And how I'm kind of not much of a Jennifer Lawrence fan. That I just don't dig her performances in general. I came back to this. I think she's great. Mm-hmm. I want to come out and say, I think she's really good in this movie. Um, I want your thoughts. Um, I thought it was interesting that they decided to make Mystique such a major player. Uh, like, I'm curious as to what went into that decision. Uh, because while... Certainly, she is, uh, you know, Rebecca Romaine Stamos as Mystique in the later or in the in the original X-Men is memorable. Um, to be blunt, she's not entirely memorable because of her incredibly complex character backstory. Um, so the fact that they decided to give her one was interesting to me. Um, Jennifer Lawrence would not have like I I. I pretty much enjoy just about anything Jennifer Lawrence does. Um, she's one of those actresses where even talent aside, and I think she does have talent. There's just something in inher- It's like Tom Hanks. There's just something inherently likable about her. Um, I'm just, I'm just drawn to her as a person. Um, and I think that shines through in her work. Um, so I certainly wasn't disappointed by the fact that she was chosen to play it. I just thought it was interesting. Um, and certainly she is able, if you are going to give mystique more depth, uh, she is a, she's an actress who is able to bring that depth out. Um, I really liked the relationship that, uh, she and Xavier had, um, and for that matter, her and Magneto, I mean, to a certain degree, she became the, the physical embodiment of the, the theoretical war of ideas between Xavier's approach and Eric's approach. Um, you know, Xavier, it is, I, I, to go off on a bit of a tangent here, but it is so interesting going back and watching that film today, as opposed to five or six years ago, um, where there is over, I mean, the stuff that has happened socially in the past five to six years, um, we are so much more aware of the kind of quiet oppression or, and sometimes not so quiet oppression that has been going on under the noses, quite frankly, under the noses of people like you and me. Um, and I remember when the first X-Men came out, I mean, I always loved Xavier, um, and his idea 
uh, of no, we, we, you know, the, the classic thing, the, the thing of no, you answer hatred with love. You, um, you know, you constantly seek for peace. Um, this film does a really great job of showing the shadow side of that. Um, and there are two major shadow sides of it. The first one being that if you are constantly seeking peace, it is very easy for you to turn that into seeking appeasement. Uh, the fact that he was the one who was encouraging Mystique to hide, to sort of blend in, to become, quote-unquote, more human. Um, and the other shadow side to that whole sort of seeking peace is the acknowledgement that, well, when you were brought up in a Westchester County mansion, it is real easy for you to say, yes, let's turn the other cheek and take the higher road. Um, don't get me wrong, in my own personal life, I continuously dedicate myself to turning the other cheek and taking the higher road. But at the same time, I have to be aware of the fact that there are people for whom that choice was stripped from them, not by their, uh, that choice was stripped from them as a, uh, long ago, just like it was from Magneto. Well, and I think that what I've always loved about Magneto's, uh, perspective is he's the perspective of someone who's been through it Mm -hmm. and i think that that is until very recently i think you would not be able to have really clear examples in western culture of people who've been with it certainly as you as you move to the other side of the world there you know in places like rwanda and, and and places where there's been ethnic cleansing you know um like in the balkans like you you could get people on that side of the world who you could then sort of draw up as, as the next generation of people having this happen. But in terms of something that's in the zeitgeist of, of English speaking audiences, the Holocaust was sort of the last big one that we can point to that we can go, Oh, people who looked like us went through it. And I think that, Mm. you know, that Xavier's or, or Magneto's backstory being there is something that, that, speaks to people like you and me because he's a person who looks like you and me in a society that is supposed to be like ours that had that happen. I think that it can be argued that society is is starting to there that there are people who are feeling more oppressed um across Western society um for multiple for a multitude of reasons. I don't in any way want to make this a political show because that's not what this is. Uh but it's you know it's a it's a deeply political film that asks deeply political questions. Mm-hmm. Um, you know the 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 question of how far do you go is always Xavier's question. It comes down to the end of the film. I guess we can talk about the moment now since we're really mostly going to focus on the characters and and the X Menness of this film. But the, when we get to the end of the film, you do have Magneto makes a very good point. I have seen what happens uh, when when people are just following orders. Mm-hmm. And I'm not going to let that happen. Magneto makes a very, very good point. Yeah, but Xavier also makes a very, very good point. Those are just dudes out there. Yeah, like those are just people. They're just people. They have no idea what's going on. They're not actively trying to hurt you. They're not actively trying to hurt anybody on both sides. Those are just dudes on boats who want to go home to their families. Mm-hmm. And why are you? Gonna, why do they have to die? And those two questions are going to be the allegorical questions asked between Magneto and Xavier throughout the X-Men movies, or they should be. Um, and, and to a wider extent, the questions that we need to ask as human beings. And I love that that's the core question they're bringing to us. Um, so Jennifer Lawrence as, 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 as mystique is, you're right in that she has the ability to both blend in and be absolutely, she does She can be absolutely, 
you know, normal human looking and, and never have to worry about it, but she would have to reject who she is. Um, uh, and you know, the, the, the allegories are, are far and wide, you know, when they ask, you know, when they ask beast, you know, you're a mutant. He goes, he goes, he goes, they didn't ask. I didn't tell. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's, it's really clear what they're saying there. Yeah. Um, uh, so I think that, I, I think that, that using her character as as the person who walks the line between who sees both point of view, um, I think that's a really interesting choice. Mm-hmm. Uh, I the X Men ness of the film, I have I have an issue with this. You know, this is this is the this is the Anakin built C three PO of the X Men universe. Um, mm-hmm. Oh, Mystique grew up with Xavier. They How convenient! Were like best. Fr- they were be- funny. Nobody mentioned that before. Yeah, you know when she breaks into Cerebro and plants a a, a virus that's gonna kill him. Um, they were best friends, like like brother and sister. Something you thought might got might have gotten brought up mm-hmm. before, and yet no one did. That's it's the beginning of what is going to become a multitude of problems. Mm-hmm. Uh, that I have with the X Men continuity, that this just this doesn't add up for me. Did that? Did was that a problem for you? Or, or I know you're not as yeah. You know me, continuity. Like I, it, it's a lot easier for me to exist uh, to exist in a realm of you know multiverse parallel plot lines. Um, no, obviously this is. I mean, there's enough similarity in which if you wanted to claim continuity between this film and the original X-Men stuff, you could patch it, you, you know, you could sew it together in enough places that it would kind of hang loosely. You'd create some kind of tapestry with it uh, enough so that if you wanted to say, nope, it's all part of one universe, I'd be like, okay, sure, whatever, fine, that's good. Um, I think it is much more likely that what it is, is these are, um, as with as with folktales, uh, these are two iterations of the same story. Uh, it's almost like you had the X-Men, you know, there's the, you know, the folk story of the X-Men and in this one town, they told it and it happened this way. And then, you know, somebody heard it from somebody else and someone heard it from someone else and someone heard it from someone else. And then a couple years later in another town, halfway across the world, someone else is telling the story. And of course it's changed a little bit. It's still kind of the same story but it's also not um and so in that sense it is both it is both part of the continuity and completely different uh in the sense that you know i would even say you know spider-man and ultimate spider-man are both there is continuity between them and yet obviously they're like it's a weird paradox of it is both the same story and it is not yeah, I mean, it, it's, if Wolverine didn't appear in this film, you could say this is a a an alternate story. But the presence of Wolverine in this film, and certainly the events of the next film, which I guess you can't judge this film by those events. Yeah, I will um, say the, uh, the I think the, the the idea of having Wolverine appear in this one, um, I am willing to, you know, yes, that kind of sort of tried to lock it in by saying we're going to do the same continuity here. Um, it was. It's just such a delightful moment, though, clearly meant to be 
it is one of those rare moments where it's like, oh no, this is straight up fan service. Um, and we're just doing this with fiendish delight, regardless of the implications of what it's going to have on future storylines or things like that. We don't care. This moment is perfect. We're doing it. Um, so I was willing to essentially let that moment exist and then, you know, forget about it five minutes later. Yeah, me, I, me too. I think that the Jennifer Lawrence does a good enough job and it's so key to the story that I'm willing to let it go. But it is the beginning of what I feel is, you know, it's, it's a good idea for this film that ends up, in my opinion, being one of the things that sort of cracks apart the X-Men universe. That if you're going to have a series of films that are that are intertwined, but they're not intertwined, and they're going to go for 20 years, and you're going to be have like 11 of them, that you're eventually going to be in a situation where you you have amazing films like Logan, which are great, but also don't match up with anything else that's happening in the X-Men universe. You, by the, by mm-hmm. the end, you're going to have X-Men Dark Phoenix, which will directly contradict the events of of the original X-Men films. Well, and that's uh, um, I, I think and- it comes down to uh, it comes down to storytelling preference. Then there is there is the theory of storytelling of no, everything that you do needs to be everything that you do in a world or with a story needs to tie in well with the history of that story that has been laid before. Otherwise, you just get chaos and broken pieces and a lot of confusion. Um, but on the other end of the spectrum, there's the idea of, well, I have a story that I want to tell, and these characters and this world is really rich. Um, why should I let myself be hampered by choices that were made before if I think I have this great story that people are really going to enjoy? You know, in the Bible, it says, be hot or cold, uh, be not lukewarm, or else I spit you out my mouth. And I think that one of the problems that I have, and we're going to talk about this as time goes on. I don't want to belabor the point too much here, but I think you can go either way. I think that DC is facing the same problem right now with what in the world are they going to do with Aquaman and Wonder Woman? Because Aquaman and Wonder Woman are really good movies or Wonder Woman is Aquaman is an interesting film uh, that people really like. Um, But they are part of a continuity they don't want to keep anymore. There's a new Batman and a totally different Joker. And they're going, we're doing standalone films now, and there is no Justice League, but you're still telling the Wonder Woman story, which is a direct sequel to the Wonder Woman that you had before, which directly references Batman. And I think either you have to be what you're doing, which which is... Here's another story. I lo- I, I'm totally okay with her being a Jack Nicholson Joker and a Joaquin Phoenix Joker and a and a um a, the Dark Knight Joker, um, a Heath Ledger Joker. I'm less okay with the Jared Leto Joker. Um, but I I have a like I'm okay with those things existing. Here's another version, another version, another version. But it would to me doing it the way that they're doing it here is like getting to the third Harry Potter book and just being like. Yeah, yeah, Hermione was a dude um, all along, and Harry is actually 17, he's not 12 in the first one, and in the next one going, no, he's actually 14. And well, I think also, you're, they're all, it, it is easy to judge, to fall into the trap of judging this film based on the films that came after. When this film that came out, for all, extents and, for, for all intents and purposes, this was a reboot. 
Yes. It was a yeah, you know a this movie, yeah. yeah we we didn't know that there you know Days of Future Past was the film that really tried to sort of wed the two universes together. Um, this one was I mean even when I first saw it, my understanding was oh this is kind of just like a this is a standalone sort of you know this is a standalone take on what their origin could have been like. Yeah. Um, all right, let's keep moving down. Uh, we talked. I talked about um, unsung heroes of the film. Nicholas Holt as a beast. Um, what a heartfelt dude this guy is in his performances. I have always enjoyed him. Um, uh, this guy shows up. Um, I think he's probably most famous for Mad Max Fury Road um, and X Men. Uh, was he witness I love me? Him. He was witness me. Ah, yes, he was nice. Um, he also has a uh, a wonderful um, zombie film called Warm Bodies, um, where where he's a zombie who falls in love with it's Romeo and Juliet but with zombies. Mm-hmm. Um, that's really wonderful. He's played Tolkien in a movie. Oh, from that's last right. Year called Tolkien. Yeah. Um, um, I like this guy. I like this guy a whole lot. Um, and I I think in this film he does provide a lot of heart to the film. Um. In a film that that has a lot of big ideas, um, he makes me feel the most, with the exception of Fassbender's emotional moments. Yeah, mm-hmm. he really has me on his side. So he's he's great. Um, again, we can go through the 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 Hellfire Club. They're cool looking, right? I mean, Azazel is cool and can teleport. And in the comics, he has something to do with Nightcrawler. But again, I find myself going, "So is this Nightcrawler's dad in this?" and or is he not? Is I it mean, just a the, coincidence? Do all to Yeah, the uh I think for the Hellfire Club the um with the exception of Shaw, um they were all kind of forgettable. Um I, I want to touch on Emma Frost a little bit, but uh yeah, the you know the the essential all the so you've got Shaw, Emma Frost, and then just a slew of forgettable henchmen. Yeah. Um I mean it's I mean, to, was cool to be looking. fair, on the he on the hero neat. side, you have exi- you have um, you have Mystique and Beast, and then a slew of relatively forgettable heroes too. Um, that well, was unless you, of- I mean, unless you're into the comics, unless you're into the comics, in which case you're like, oh, havoc. I mean, again, uh, I'm so I'm knowing bogged down by the continuity stuff, and we'll get there with Emma Frost too because that's a huge one. But like havoc. This is this is Scott Summers' little brother, who's older than Scott Summers here, and never mentioned again when we're dealing with Scott. Like Scott Summers mm-hmm. is part of uh, X Men Apocalypse, which is why, which is and why yet, much more I think when judging this film, we really need to let go of the question of yeah, because I don't because I don't what think that later? was there. In, this film was enough of a success. Like my my theory is. You know, for all we know, they weren't going to be making, you know, it was not necessarily on the books that they were going to be making Days of Future Past before they started filming this. It was more like, hey, this went pretty, this movie went over pretty well. Hey, oh, guys, I got an idea. Let's do Days of Future Past. And because that is a fi- that is a storyline that deals with both future and past, we can have both sets of, you know, Xavier Magnetos in the same film. And if I were a producer being, uh, you know, being faced with that choice, uh, my first thought would be, there's a lot of continuity issues between this reboot film that we did and this new one. And then my second thought would be, I don't care because the thought of having, you know, 
both pairings of Xavier Magneto in the same film is awesome enough that I'm willing to overlook the continuity things. Um, yeah, okay, so let, to, to be fair to this film and to give us something to talk about later, let's say Matthew Vaughn did not direct any of those other films. The mm-hmm. writers are different. The director is different. And we can't blame him for the fact that Havoc is in this film. This could absolutely be related to Scott from the original X-Men movies. We don't have to worry about how he doesn't seem in any way to be related to the Scott that comes later in you the You know, we might films. be looking at a... We might be discovering a shadow side to... Well, for one thing, making superhero films from comics because comics is so much about interconnectivity and continuity. Um, you know, no, with, with rare exception, no single issue of a comic book stands on its own. It's always part of a much larger universe and a you know, that the sense of, Oh, all of these stories need to line up is kind of a core concept with comics, but that's never been the case with films. Films were meant to be standalone things. And then when, you know, the concept of the sequel was developed, um, you know, even, you know, even some of the, you know, the sequels that really jump out at me, um, you know, Aliens was a vastly different film than Alien, even though, yes, of course, there was continuity to it. Um, but we are now living in an era of the Marvel Cinematic Universe where they decided to take this really bold choice of say, no, Let's make the movies just as interconnected as the comics were, which was a bold choice and has given us a lot of wonderful things. But I think one of the things that might have taken away from us is our ability to look at any superhero film and look at it purely on its own terms and not based on how does this link up to all of the other superhero films around it? Because we're currently in a... We're in a default state of, oh, all of these things are supposed to line up because that's what the MCU has been doing. Yeah, I think that there, you know, there were very, very like, like, I think Star Trek is is maybe the only series of of entertainment up to the, the point of the release of this film that had ever tried to create a single continuity where nothing conflicted. And there are plenty of things that conflict within Star Trek, mm-hmm. um, but they really, really made the effort in the Star Trek movies to to and the and the film series to have them all connect from the very first episode of Star Trek to all the way through Star Trek Nemesis and everything in between that they're all supposed to be one big story, um, which is really a big thing. It's worth noting that you know even when we get to this film, you're on you know this film is now the fifth X-Men film and you didn't have a lot of movies where you had five films in a row and they were five, unless they were based on a series of books like the Harry Potter movies where the, the books were already, you know, one big story considered to be one big story. You didn't have a lot of films like that mm-hmm. um, where part five had a whole lot to do with part one nightmare on Elm street five, you Nancy's gone and the rules of what Freddie can do has changed. You know, certainly the bond films don't do that. Certainly mm-hmm. the, you know, any of the other big franchises, you know, look at the Rocky franchise. It seems like it's connected, but really if you try and watch them in order, they just completely forget and or completely recreate characters. Mm-hmm. Um, um, so I think that the, the thing that I am, I'm not giving it its chance. Um, and we're going to talk Emma Frost cause that's its biggest problem. Um, that that I feel like there should be when and I, I'm sure they're going to do this when these cross over to to 
the MCU. I think there does need to be sort of a keeper of the flame when it comes to continuity to go, hey, here are the things that we, let, let's just, there are going to be a certain number of fans that are put off by this and maybe don't do that. Um, and we'll talk about it when we get to Emma Frost because this is a big issue. Let's talk real quick. Uh, uh, Ooh, oh, sorry. Great just, to see- this yeah. just occurred to me. I know, I know we've been, I've been harping on this particular theme and everything, but I think it just, it comes down to, uh, because as all listeners know, I need to mention the word myth at least once in every episode. Um, if superhero stories are meant to be mythic, then you do not need a keeper of the flame. In point of fact, having a single keeper, um, a, you know, who a codified, uh, nope, this is what it is, you know, um, that sort of goes against the idea of mythic, which is that myths are archetype characters that then sort of reflect the culture that is telling that particular story about that particular character. Um, what the Marvel, the Marvel cinematic universe is not treated as a series of myths. It is treated as a codified religion. And I'm not saying religion in the sense that it is, you know, that there's people who actually worship these, um, you know, these people as real, but it is a religion in the sense that there are people with the authority to say, this is part of our dogma. This is not, this is the text. Um, and anything outside of this text is not an official part of the story that we are telling. Um, but, uh, so sorry that that difference just occurred to me. Yeah, I think that the I think the problem is you can't have both myth and fan service, and that's what you come down to. I'm absolutely okay with Walking Phoenix playing the Joker. I would not be okay with Ben Affleck showing up in that movie as Batman because he's already fought a totally different Joker, and unless you're just saying it's the same joke with a different actor, but I like, I, I would not be okay with, with a totally uh, like uh, somebody with a totally different story showing up in something that has a story that contradicts the story that it has. Mm -hmm. So I think, I think, you know, I'm, I am okay with there being both man of steel and Superman, but if somehow you brought in, I mean, I guess the big question, last Spider-Man movie, you brought in J. Jonah Jameson. If you're trying to say that's the same J. Jonah Jameson from the other Spider-Man movie, I I don't know if I'm making any sense. Like, it's, yeah, it's, no, I know. I get that. It, and that. But again, so that, no. You're the talking J, about actually, like, like there. Go ahead. Um, no, I was saying, so J. Jonah Jameson is actually a perfect example of that because the, you know, yes, that's the first question. It's like, okay, did they just get J.J. Simmons to, um, to, uh, to play the character. Like, so are we seeing the same character or are we seeing the same actor? Um, ultimately to me, the question is me- The question is moot because the reason why we're seeing the same actor is because everyone realized, Oh my God, there is really only one person who is perfect for playing J Jonah Jameson. Yeah. Um, and so because of that, it is a question that I am, it, my willingness to throw out any question of continuity or things like that is directly related to, the awesomeness of the moment that you potentially sacrificed or confused continuity for. Um, if you brought, look, I don't mind Ben Affleck's Batman. I actually rather enjoyed his Batman and justice. Yeah, League. I think he's really good. Actually. But yeah, but the, the point that you make there is if, if you brought Ben Affleck's Batman into 
um, you know, into a storyline in which he clearly is not meant to be, I'd have more problem with that because I, because it wouldn't be a moment of, oh my God, they brought Ben Affleck back. Like that wouldn't happen. It would be like, oh, they, they brought Ben Affleck back. Whereas um, seeing the return of J. Jonah Jameson, particularly with the fact that they did, they've completely twisted it with a new spin by making the Daily Bugle now InfoWars and just such a bright, fresh new take on the concept and by extension, the character. Um, it was such a, it was a, yes, it brought confusion, but it was worth it because of all the other things that it brought with it, if that makes sense. Yeah, I think that I, and, and where you say that's, that's how, how and where you can accept it. You know, you and I have talked off the show about the nature of science fiction and the nature of fantasy. And I, we talked about it over on, um, on the pop up podcast when we used to do that. And one of the things we said is for, for, for science fiction and fantasy to work, it has to exist within a world of rules. Um, and, and that's actually kind of the fun of it is learning the rules of the world. So my acceptance of alterations within a possible canon is directly influenced by how much the story is telling me to accept it as canon. Mm-hmm. So the story is on one hand, what I, what I was going to say, it's, it's talking on both sides of your mouth, X-Men makers, um, to go, one, this is a totally new story, so accept it as that. And also, two, this is supposed to be the same story as the other ones. They're saying both things at the same time. That cognitive dissonance is bothering me. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't mind a completely different X-Men film, but you can't give me the same exact scene from the first X-Men movie and Hugh Jackman and then what comes later. It's it, it's It's... I, my brain can't process. You it. know what? Maybe Ironically, that's my problem. here's something to put you. If they had made Mystique look completely different, instead of it being like, you know, instead of it being Jennifer Lawrence in the same, you know, blue bodysuit that Rebecca Romaine Stamos was in, if it was still clearly, you know, a Mystique that was influenced from the comics, but she had a vastly different look. So that essentially made it very clear. Oh, this is not the same. Mystique. This is we're not seeing a young Rebecca Romaine Stamos. We're just seeing a young Mystique. Um, like to me, that would have very clearly said, "Oh, okay, we're actually looking at a different X Men storyline here." And again, if they had brought um, the Hugh Jackman cameo in, uh, and for those who haven't seen the film, the, the the cameo we're talking about here is when they're looking is when Xavier and Magneto are going and looking for different mutants. You know, we see this montage of them. Uh, going from place to place and finding mutants and recruiting them. And then we cut to this bar in the middle of a snowy landscape. And the, uh, you know, we see a fellow smoking a cigar. It pulls back and we see Hugh Jackman there. Um, You know, Xavier and Magneto approach him from behind without even looking at them. Logan tells them to F off. And they just, without saying anything, turn and walk out. Uh, that, so that's the moment we're talking about there. It was absolute fan service. Um, absolute tongue in cheek. No, I'm okay with that. It's, but the, but the opening of the film being shot for shot. I mean, they use the same footage. Oh, that's true. That's true. Yeah. From the first X-Men So in that sense, they were kind of making a statement with that. 
if they had remade the opening of the, if they had remade that scene the way that they have remade the death of the Waynes so many times and said, yes, same story, different version mm-hmm. from moment one. But then they still had like Hugh Jackman in there because why not? I would have accepted it. And I'm you really, know, it's like I'm you said in the previous, give- you said in the previous podcast, it's you get every film gets one gimme gets one. Sure. I'll yeah. suspend my disbelief for that. Hugh Jackman I'll absolutely would have been a great gimme. And I'll give this one two gimmies. I will also give it Jennifer Lawrence as Mystique. But let's talk about Emma Frost. Mm-hmm. Not my favorite character to start with. Um, and we said that. that. That's not one that I always loved. Um, uh, the performance with no shade being thrown at January Jones as an actor or person. I don't know her from anything else. Um, but the performance is not on par with par with the people she's surrounded by. Yeah. Um, sometimes it seems like she's there to, to be cleavage and mm-hmm. not the strength that she can be. The effects done on her are not as great as they could have been. Um, I've always hated Emma Frost's secondary mutation to begin with um, in, in the comics, but here's my problem with Emma Frost. You see, in X-Men Origins, Wolverine, uh, which is supposed to end after um, Xavier is already in a wheelchair and has the bald hair and is played by a D.H. Patrick Stewart, Emma Frost is a little girl in that movie. Mm-hmm. I haven't seen the film. So we'll talk about it when we get to it, but it came out before this and Emma Frost is established in that film as being a little girl later than this point in the X-Men timeline. So here's my huge problem. Here is my continuity aside. Here is my issue with Emma Frost in this film, um, because Emma Frost in the comics is um, she is not. I, I think by design, she is not a super likable character. She is a profoundly compelling character. The thing is, when Emma oh, Frost yeah. is done right in the comics, um, there is a coldness about her. Um, you know, she is, she is well-named. There is a coldness about her that, quite frankly, radiates off the page when I'm reading Emma Frost written well. Um, can we say, is, the name Emma Frost and the White Queen, can we say that she is evoking the White Witch from, from Narnia? Maybe I think she's I mean, she's I think both of them are tapping into the same archetype. Um, She is, you know, certainly there's a there's an aspect of femme fatale to it. Um, I mean, Emma Frost has never not been attractive, but you so much of her personality is just cold steel. Um, And. January Jones as Emma Frost and whether it was a question of the acting or the writing, there was a warmth to her in this. Um, And it might be that if you have a character who actually doesn't say that many lines or doesn't have very many interesting things and is just there, as you say, cleavage um, by its nature, that character feels warmer um, or certainly feels warmer to a, you know, warm-blooded male um than than they otherwise would and uh so emma frost was i of all the characters i feel like 
in the film, she was the one who was wasted the most just because she is such a powerhouse in the comics. And she was reduced yeah, to Frosch, really being a, a, set dressing in this is, one. Yeah, she should seem like she is ready to take over and murder anyone she needs to to get where she wants to be. But conventional power is not what she's interested in. So mm-hmm. she's letting Sebastian Shaw pursue conventional power because it's to her liking. Yes. And it should it should seem like that. And it absolutely does not. You know, she she's I mean, she's not even Starscream to his Megatron. Mm-hmm. It's not it's. Yeah, she's not working for me, you know, at all. Um, and and again, for so many reasons. And the continuity, continuity reason, that is the continuity, first piece of continuity that really breaks the universe. And there will be more, but we'll talk mm-hmm. more about it. What were your thoughts? On. Oh, on, lastly. Yeah, what were your thoughts on Kevin Bacon as Sebastian Shaw? Okay, so here's the thing. I've, over the years, I've heard Kevin Bacon take some some crap for his performance as Sebastian Shaw. Um, and I don't get it. I don't know if I have a Kevin Bacon bias. I love Bacon. Um, I dig him in this role. And I don't know if it's that I dig him in this role or that I just dig Kevin Bacon. Um, because I think that he is hammy when he needs to be hammy. I think that he's a comic book villain when he's a comic villain. I think he's a scary Nazi when he needs to be a scary Nazi. I think he is everything he needs to be at every point that he needs to be at with enough um, with, with enough interplay within those roles and within his character during the film that he that he pulls it off. I think that he is is absolutely great. I agree. Um, I love him as the role. Um, he is uh, he's just fun to watch. He is absolutely able to handle um, being on screen with these other acting powerhouses. Uh, I I dig him a ton. I always felt like Kevin Bacon should have been a bigger star than he was. Yeah. It's, I, I feel and, it's the, I mean, you know, and you can't, you can't, you can't mention Kevin Bacon without mentioning the game. But then that also brings up the question of Kevin Bacon has suddenly Kevin Bacon as an actor. He is through no fault of his own become too meta for his own good. Like everyone knows, Oh, it's Kevin Bacon. Um, and so because of that, it's, it's real. It's a lot harder for Kevin Bacon to disappear into a role um, than a lot of other actors. And again, that is through no fault of his. That is just because through whatever strange confluence of events, um, his name became a household name for something that had very little to do with his acting ability. Um, and so I think a lot of the people who ragged on Kevin Bacon in this film were ragging on the concept of wait a minute, it's Kevin Bacon. He doesn't belong in my superhero films. Um, yeah. Yeah, because within the first five I, minutes, I'm sorry, the, the, the scene with, uh, you know, when he's scary German Nazi doctor, uh, you know, within the, like, the look on his face, just the way that he, you know, he shoots Eric's mother, the look of delight on his face as Eric starts murderizing the, you know, the guards. I'm watching it and I'm thinking, oh, that's right. Bacon's a really good actor. Why do I keep forgetting that? He's always a really good actor, even in yeah. terrible films. He's a really good actor. I I think that he is, um, you know, and 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 a really good guy, by the way, as 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 human beings go. Also, a a, a decent dude. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I think that he's great. I think that the the character is one of the stronger villains, right? I think that if you look across the like. Do you even call Eric a villain anymore? By the time you get to this, I guess he is. He's he's 
you know, he is the main villain of the first X-Men film. And I think he's never the main villain again mm-hmm. um, after that point. Uh, you know, he is, I would dare say stronger than either of the Jean Greys you gave us. He's not as strong as, um, as Stryker as, in X2. as Stryker, but again, got to have Stryker's dad in this one. Yeah. It's that, yeah. It's that stuff mm-hmm. there. I'm just like, Oh really? Okay. So Stryker's dad was here too. Okay. Everybody, everybody's dad was here. Um, uh, that's, you know, he's better than apocalypse. <laughs> Spoiler mm-hmm. alert. Yeah. Um, I, I think that, I think that, that he is an absolutely, I forgot. I think it's a, largely, I mean, I guess we can come to, to the sort of the end of, of how we feel about, uh, feel about the film. We could just go another hour just on the plot and how cool the James Bond stuff is. Yeah. Um, I, I, this I, film is, is I, real shout out to the scriptwriter for taking, you know, because one of the things that has always made X-Men such a special, uh, such a special comic, such a special story, um, even a, even in a world of comics where we've got heroes like Spider-Man and Superman and Batman, one of the things that's always made X-Men so special is the fact that it has been meant to be a reflection of our society. And the fact that they were able to weave the fear of mutants in with the Red Scare uh, of the Cold War era um, and basically taking, you know, essentially weaving myth with history is, uh, you know, my hat's really off to whoever had the idea. And I think they did a great job with it. Yeah, I think that the, you know, first, uh, this wonderful quote from uh, from Matthew Vaughn, I got my cake and ate it, managed to do an X-Men movie and a Bond thing and a Frankenheimer po- political thriller at the same time. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yep. Uh, um. I think that the boldest choice was to set it in the middle of the Cuban Missile Crisis and say that the X-Men stopped that. Yeah. It's so, it's nuts. It That's a good point. When you think worked. about it's, that, yeah, it's, it's really freaking audacious to take a moment in American history, which, you know, is so fraught um, and in which there are very clear actual historical heroes um there are you know, great movies made about this yeah this, this, and like, instead yeah. it, it takes it takes some real cojones to say you know what we're gonna make a movie where nope it was our gang of plucky mutants who ended up saving the day and yet and, they pulled and, it off and it's not like inglorious bastards where we're going here's an alternate history mm-hmm. they're trying to say in this film no this is what happened this you just never happened. knew about it yeah yeah, you were you. What they didn't tell you in history class was that it was mutants that did it. <laughs> it was it, it is, was mutants. I'm, I'm envisioning that meme of the guy who was like, "It was aliens. It was mutants." Yeah, it's it's crazy. It's crazy that they chose to do that, and the fact they pulled it off as well as they did. Great to see Michael Ironside in there, by the way. Um, just it, it should not have worked. Mm-hmm. This should this should have failed. In that particular endeavor, and it did not. It really worked. Um, so much we could talk about. The, as a revenge film, it worked. I mean, I, my favorite section of the film is actually the scenes of of Eric finding the people and getting revenge. Those play like a Tarantino film. Oh, yes, they um, do. Oh, they play like a sweet... And you are so rooting for him in those moments. Oh, yeah, when they're drinking the beer and he's just killing people with a coin. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, uh, it's great. 
It's just so good. And, and how he shoots the knife across. It's just so good. The whole thing is good. Um, the whole movie is good. Um, I'm just going to like, we'll jump to the end because we have to, because we can't like, goodness sake, this is one of our longest episodes. And I feel like we were cutting everybody off short, but we got to, yeah. um, on a scale of one to five X's, uh, what would you rate X-Men First Class? I would rate X-Men First Class a four. Uh, and here's why. Um, I, you know, and I enjoyed it the first time. The first time I saw it, I was like, oh, hey, that was actually pretty good. Uh, my second time coming, you know, watching it a couple weeks ago, uh, I again thought, oh yeah, that's pretty good. And actually thought it was better than pretty good in a lot of places. Um, it definitely gets points for its impact in that it revitalized a franchise. Um, you know, days of future past, uh, Logan, none of these movies would have happened without first class. I think, um, there are, I think areas of the film where it drags, it does suffer from uh, pretty much once you get past the main heroes and villains, uh, you end up with a whole lot of forgettable uh, second rate, uh, both sidekicks and henchmen. Um, the The CIA side of it didn't quite land for me. Um, you know, there was By the, the way, speaking of CIA, speaking of CIA things landing, so good to see Oliver Platt. Yeah. Love that guy. Oliver Platt. Why is great. this guy not in every movie still? Mm-hmm. Love him. Sorry, yeah. go on. In fact, I was very sorry to see him land in this film. Uh, because that's how he died. Um, so, so yeah, great film. I would highly recommend seeing it. Um, it's got enough flaws in it that I would not put it in the highest echelon, uh, but it definitely, it's... I, I would definitely put it higher than a, oh yeah, this is worth, this is worthwhile if it's on. Um, so yeah, four stars for me. It's a tough one for me. I love this film a lot. And I'm in one of those situations where I wonder if I need to give myself room for days of future past or not. I, I've seen this film quite a few times. I bought days of future past, um, not the rogue cut, which is not what we're going to be reviewing uh, next time. Um, but I bought it having seen Days of Future Past once. And I bought this at the same time. And I have never popped Days of Future Past in. I have not seen Days of Future Past since the theater. But I'll pop this on from time to time. This is a breezy watch. It is... It is. I, I go, why not give it a... Why not give it a 5 or a 4.5? And what more do I need? It's It's... My favorite X movie. It's got the X Men. It's it's got everything that I like, but um, the continuity issues. I have to hold it responsible for the things that it does do, and the fact that you know it would have been possible to not use Emma Frost or to use her differently or to at least have her character be different. She's such an essential character that to the Hellfire Club. And if you're gonna break the world to include her because she has to be part of the Hellfire Club, then do her right. Otherwise, don't do her at all. And that kind of holds true for the Hellfire Club. You could have done Sebastian Shaw and not had it been Hellfire Club. Um, and then you didn't need to break the world and have a breaking continuity. You could have just not had Emma Frost. Um, I wanted to see more of Azazel. I didn't see more of him. I got more of her, which I didn't want. Um, uh, I think that the the '60s vibe I really like. I'm between a. I'm going to give it a 4.25 if you'll excuse it. I know we say we don't like the two fives, but 
I can't give it a 4.5 because it just isn't there. But I feel like a four, when I go, it might be my favorite X-Men movie and the X-Men are my favorite comic book characters. How can I just give it a four? How can I give it what I would give a, you know, an Iron Man? I like this way better than Iron Man. I like this way better than any of the Spider-Man except for maybe Spider-Verse. This was a pleasure to watch, a genuine pleasure to watch. And I can't give it a 4.5 because I just feel like it doesn't. The one thing it doesn't have, I guess, guess Arthur, is it doesn't, until you get to the, the killing of Shaw at the end, it does not have emotional heft to it. And I feel like that is maybe the one thing that it's missing that future past might mm-hmm. deliver on in different ways. But, uh, but, just a solid entry and a forgotten entry in the X-Men franchise. I think it's worth noting that the crashing, crashing and burning that later happened um, sometimes gets traced back to this. And I think unfairly, this absolutely should be watched, watched first. And if you could only watch one X-Men film, dare I say it, this might be the one that we're talking about. Anyway, uh, next week, the we go from the X-Men film that is unsung to the most successful X-Men film ever made, the one that everybody was always hoping that they would do, the mm-hmm. one that pulls out all the stops. Um, there's a possibility this could become my favorite X-Men film upon watching it. Certainly, it gives you everything that you want. When I walked out of the theater, uh, I said to myself, that's my favorite X-Men film. I don't know. Upon yeah, second viewing, that might change, but certainly when I walked out of the theater... Yeah, it certainly is the most X-Men film. We'll give it that. Of all the X-Men films, this, this is the is most. The most. <laughs> um, um, X-Men Days of Future Past is coming next. Uh, welcome to the new season of Totally Super. Can't wait to be doing this uh, more on the regular. So many great things coming uh, this fall uh, and throughout the year. But uh, stay with us as we go through um, the, the rise and fall of the X-Men franchise. My name is Justin. Oh, you said your name is Justin. I didn't understand that last part there. Yeah, try, try it again. Set me up. Set me up. My Set name me remains up. Justin. And my name oh. is Arthur. And hey there, True Believers. Stay groovy. Now that you've finished the show, be sure to subscribe so that you never miss an episode of the Totally Super Podcast. Also, if you like this, you should head over to geeksradio.com or search Geeks Radio wherever you listen to podcasts. There you can find Trek Off, the not-safe-for-work Star Trek podcast with Justin and Alexia. So search for Trek Off, search for Pop Off, search for Geeks Radio, and just thanks for joining us. This has been a presentation of Light Entertainment. 